Good morning and a very warm welcome to our Sunday morning service. Welcome to our Sunday morning service. Welcome, welcome to our Sunday morning service. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Good morning. Let us join together in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence in the name of your Son and our Saviour, Jesus. We would echo the words of the Apostle Paul as we say, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And we're glad to be able to come to you, for with you is the fountain of life. As we meet this morning, though in separate places, we meet as your children, united as a family by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for making us one in Christ. We ask that we may find our strength, our hope, our joy in you today. We pray that you will fill our hearts and minds with the wonder of being made alive in Christ. And Father, may we truly know you and the great and everlasting love you have for your people. We come with our thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.
Good morning. I know one of the things we all miss most at the moment is seeing and hearing one another. So thank you to Andrew Walkington for putting these videos together where we can at least see a few familiar faces each week. We hope that it's not too long before we can be here together again. But in the meantime, we continue to be so grateful for Alan, Tom, and Jake for continuing to put things together each week so that we can meet this way together. And above all, we're grateful to God that His mercies and care never stop. We continue to depend on Him, and He is dependable. So let's come to Him now in prayer. Father, we're glad to remember that you are rich in mercy, abounding in love and faithfulness. You are compassionate and gracious. All this, and you know us perfectly. You are familiar with all our ways, the rough and the smooth ways, the ways of failure and the ways of success the ways of joy and the ways of sorrow. Whatever way each of us is in today, you know it and you care about it. So how could we fail to worship you? How could we hold ourselves back from you? You know us and you love to help us. So we come to you now with our concerns and with our thankfulness, we take a moment to bring them all to you now. Father, we bring ourselves to you, and we bring our brothers and sisters as well in their needs. We thank you for your care for Jared North this week and his illness. We thank you too that Anne-Marie's daughter Gemma has been making progress and that she's doing a lot better. We thank you that Abby Couchman is now a qualified teacher. We thank you for all those who've had opportunities to share their faith in Jesus recently with friends and colleagues. We thank you for a new openness in many people to hear about Jesus. And we ask you to bring salvation and life out of these conversations. We pray for those who have still health concerns, particularly this week we pray for Les Ratherham and Carol Whitehouse and Megan's brother Justin in the U.S. We also pray for Leon's colleague, Mark, as he suffers with coronavirus. We ask you to deliver him in his illness. We pray again for Gary and Tracy Crutchley as they wait again 
as they continue to plead for progress with their son, Lewis. We pray with them this morning. We pray for a miracle in Lewis's life. And we ask this, we ask all these things, knowing that you are a God of miracles. You have changed our lives supernaturally, miraculously. You've brought us from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. And we have no doubt you can do the same for others. And we ask that you will remind us of this this morning. Remind us of your great power and love. Remind us through your word as we look at that together and listen to it together. And help us to remind one another now as we sing your praises together and to each other. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's join in singing, I will sing of the Lamb and that all my ways are known to you.
Do you ever feel that life's a bit stale, a bit drab and flat? I think most of us do sometimes. Maybe you feel like that at the moment. Even when we're busy, our lives can seem dreary and dull. And when we're not busy, it can get a whole lot worse. We can go through our days feeling very uninspired. But our Bible passage this morning is here to change that. It aims to help us see our lives very differently. If our lives ever seem gray, if they seem that way right now, a careful look at this passage will help us. Let me just remind you, we're in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and this letter is about identity and life in Christ. The in Christ is crucial, because everything in this letter is for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. If you're not trusting in Jesus, then I hope the contents of this letter are attractive to you, but you need to know they are not for you. Not until you come and turn your life over to Jesus. But if you are a Christian, chapters 1 to 3 of this letter tell you about your identity in Christ. The interesting thing about chapters 1 to 3 is that Paul doesn't tell us to do anything in these chapters. He wants us to understand who we are. And he devotes three whole chapters to that. Then in chapters 4 to 6, he explains how we're to live out our identity in Christ. But first, we have to understand our identity. And we've already seen two aspects of it. It's like Paul is building up a picture for us. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, he showed how you are blessed. The chief blessing is that you are not a Christian by accident. It's much more glorious than that. God chose you. He chose you before the creation of the world. God's attitude to you is not, I can take her or leave her, or I can take him or leave him. God chose you very deliberately. Your identity comes from the eternal determination of God to have you in his family. You are blessed. And last week, as Steve spoke on verses 15 to 23 of chapter 1, we saw a second aspect of our identity. We could sum it up by saying, you have a risen, reigning Lord. You don't belong to a dead Savior. Christ is risen. And his Father has placed him in authority over every other power in the universe. And he is putting that power to work for his church. The blessings you have are not under threat. Because the one who delivers those blessings to you is king over all. So in chapter 1, we went from the truth that God chose you in eternity past to the truth that your Lord Jesus is king of the universe. 
And now at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul shows us what that means for you in the present. You have a new life to live. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 are here to show us if you're a Christian, your life is the farthest thing from dreary and dull. Let's read these verses, beginning at chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is God's Word. And it tells us three truths about our identity in Christ. We've been saved from a living death. We've been saved by God's grace. And we've been saved for good works. First of all, Paul says, if you ever think your life now is gray or stale, just think back to what it used to be. Think back and remember, you've been saved from a living death. You might be thinking, isn't that a wee bit melodramatic? I don't remember it being all that bad. If we think that, we simply haven't understood our situation outside of Christ. We might have been living a terrible life full of chaos and upheaval, or we might have been living an apparently successful life full of friends and fun. But, Paul says in verse 1, whatever your life looked like on the surface, the aspect of life that matters most, in that aspect you were dead. Meaning you were dead to God. You had no relationship with your maker. And so you were cut off from true life. Earlier we sang about having life in our body, yet death in our heart. That's what Paul's talking about. We were breathing, we were eating, we were walking around, of course. 
But all the time, we were missing the life that comes from relationship with our Maker. And if we didn't happen to feel how hollow that made us, that was just another sign of how dead we were. Dead people don't feel. Look what Paul says about those dead lives we lived. In verse 2, he says, you followed the ways of this world. Literally, you walked according to the ways of this world. One of the common reasons people give for rejecting Christianity is that they want to go their own way. They want to blaze their own trail through life. But Paul says, don't kid yourself. What you end up doing is just following the well-worn paths set for you by others. You don't actually go your own way at all. You get stuck in the ruts the human race always gets stuck in. It might be the rut of thinking money will give you security if you just have a bit more of it, always just a bit more. It might be the rut of thinking that popularity will make you feel valuable if you just had a few more likes. It might be the rut of thinking you can find lasting joy by throwing yourself into hobbies or treating yourself or experimenting with all sorts of other stuff. Those are all ways of this world. And we like to think we're being original when we follow those ways. But we're just following paths that millions of others have walked before us. And those ruts do not make us truly alive. In the end, they don't get us anywhere. Did they get you anywhere before you knew Christ? But lots of non-Christians will say, okay, so I might not have been original, but at least I was my own boss. William Ernest Henley wrote a famous poem called Invictus. In that poem, he claimed to be his own boss. He said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. In other words, I'm not going to be ruled by anyone. But again, the Bible says, don't kid yourself. When you think you're being captain of your soul, in reality, verse 2 says, you're serving the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Paul's talking there about the devil, Satan. At the end of chapter 1, we heard that Jesus Christ rules the heavenly realms. Every power in those realms is under his feet. But that doesn't mean those lesser powers have no power. Here, Satan is called ruler of the kingdom of the air. In other words, in Christ, Christ himself is Lord of all. No power in the universe can operate without his say-so. And in those heavenly realms that are under Christ's feet, Satan exercises authority over his own little kingdom, the kingdom of the air. He doesn't rule in any ultimate sense, 
and he has no authority over those who are in Christ. But Satan does have power to boss those who are outside of Christ. In the book of Acts, Paul says, as he's giving a speech that's recorded in Acts, he says, those who are not in Christ are in spiritual darkness, and they are under the power of Satan. So much for being the captain of your soul. And we might respond by saying, yeah, maybe some people are like that. But I wasn't. I didn't do witchcraft or go on banders. I was a mild-mannered, garden-variety non-Christian. I wasn't under the power of Satan. Paul says, oh yes, you were. And so was I. If we don't know much about Paul's background, it's helpful for us to realize before he gave his life to Christ, Paul was a man devoted to religion. And because of that, he was confident God was pleased with him. In another place in the New Testament, he says, looking back on those old days, when it came to righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. I kept the rules. So we might be surprised that here, Paul includes himself among those who used to follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He says in verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time. Even Paul, the guy whose religion was faultless, he was under Satan's rule all the same. So you see, you don't have to be super bad to be a slave to Satan. All it takes is to be outside of Christ. If we don't belong to him, the hard truth is we belong to the devil. No matter how religious we might think we are, no matter how we might pride ourselves in being captain of our soul, Paul adds another brushstroke to this picture of living death. He shows us not only were we slaves to Satan and to the ruts of this world, we were slaves to our own bent out of shape desires and thoughts. Verse 3 says, we lived gratifying the craving of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. In the New Testament, our flesh doesn't mean the meat on our bones. It's not our muscles and tendons. It's a way of talking about our human nature under the power of sin. We choose to disobey God. Our desires and thoughts are bent in that direction. That's what we want. And that's the case even without influences from Satan or the world around us. An older writer called Richard Baxter said, the evil notions of the soul have Satan for their father and our own hearts as the mothers. In other words, even if the world and the devil were to leave us alone, our hearts would still say to God, my will be done, not yours. So when we defy God, we can't excuse ourselves by saying, the devil made me do it. 
Or it was my parents' fault. They didn't bring me up right. Or it was my mate's bad influence on me. In the end, even if all those things are true, bad influences and so on, in the end, we choose to sin. It's what we want. It's what our own desires and thoughts tell us to do. And all of this means at the end of verse 3, before we came to Christ, we were deserving of wrath. Our life was a living death in the present And all we had to look forward to in the future was an eternal living death under the condemnation of God. If you're not a Christian, verses 1 to 3 are a description of your life. Don't be fooled if your life seems to be calm and uneventful or if you're riding a wave of success even. The Bible says your true situation is worse than you realized. God says you are dead to real life. It's time for you to find life in Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian, well then you can enjoy the relief that comes from flipping around all the things we've just heard. You have been saved from a living death. In Christ, you are alive to God, reconciled to your maker. And you are not bound to follow the old, wearying patterns of sin. You do not have to live in those ruts. And you're not under Satan's power. Through faith in Christ, you have passed from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Satan isn't the boss of you. You report directly to the king of the universe, Jesus Christ. And you have a new nature. Your desires and thoughts can go in a new direction. And you will never face God's wrath. You have been saved from a living death. The salvation you have in Christ is a great salvation. And surely that makes even the most ordinary day a glorious day for us as Christians. Every so often, it's helpful for us to stop and remember what God has saved us from. In Christ, there is nothing gray or bleak about your life. When it comes to what really matters, your life is a life of high-definition color. And here's another splash of that color. In verses 4 to 7, you've been saved by God's grace. It had to be by God's grace because a dead person can't do anything to save themselves. Paul has just shown the dire trouble we were in. Now he shows the extravagant way God responded to our trouble in verse 4. But 
because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. As Christians, we use the word grace a lot. And maybe we can begin to think of it like God has made this arrangement where for some reason He doesn't punish us if we trust in Jesus. What I mean is we can lose sight of why God forgives us and doesn't punish us. It's because He loves us. He has saved us, verse 4 says, because of His great love for us. His love is great. He is rich in mercy. And verse 7 will go on to say, He has incomparable riches of grace. Outside of Christ, our situation was more dire and bleak than we realized. But God's response to our situation was extravagant. One writer sums it up by saying, in Christ, we are more accepted and loved than we ever dared hope. God's grace didn't just save us. His grace has made us more accepted and loved than we ever dared hope. And God's extravagant grace has made our new life utterly secure. At the end of chapter 1, Paul spoke about God's incomparably great power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him above every other power in the heavenly realms. That's what God did for Christ. And here we're told God has done the same for us. We see that in verse 5. We have been made alive with Christ. Just as surely as he was raised on Easter Sunday morning, so we have been made alive with him out of our living death. And in verse 6, just as Christ was seated in authority over every other spiritual power, so we have been seated with him. Now that doesn't mean you and I rule the universe. It means this new life that we have is as secure as the Savior who gives it to us. He is untouchable in His power and position. And so is our salvation. So is our enjoyment of God's love. That's what it means to be saved by God's grace. It is not a wobbly unstable life. In Christ, we're not half saved, and we'll see what happens. We'll see if we can keep going. We'll see if the devil will go easy on us, and maybe we'll make it in the end. No, absolutely not. Our salvation, the Bible says, is as secure as our risen, reigning Savior. And here's another reason our salvation is secure. 
God has graciously given us a part to play in his eternal plan. In chapter 1, Paul told us where history is going. God is going to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. That's the direction and it's the climax of all of history. And you, the Bible says, have a part to play in it. For all of eternity, you as a man or woman in Christ will be a living testimony to God's great love and rich mercy. You will be a living piece of evidence that our God is a gracious God. Look again at verses 6 and 7. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means God raised you from death to life and throughout the coming ages, your new life will testify to God's grace and kindness. You will forever be a living testimony to God's character. Your destiny is to be living evidence of God's great love and rich mercy. So your salvation is as secure as Christ's position and God's character. That's what it means to be saved by God's grace. If salvation depended on us, it could be none of the things we've just said. A salvation that depended on us would be as insecure as a house of cards or a layout of dominoes. I'm sure you've seen one of those. Someone spends hours setting up an elaborate run of hundreds of little dominoes where they cross in and out of each other and they curve around. We've tried it a few times in our house. But pretty much every time before the setup is completed, one of the dominoes gets tapped and they all fall over. If our salvation was up to us, that's what it would be like. We would work ever so hard getting all the little bits of our lives lined up so we'd finally be right, we'd finally be good enough. But before we ever managed it, something in our lives would fall over and we'd have to start all over again. We could never do it if it was up to us. But God has not set salvation up that way. He hasn't given us the job of making ourselves come spiritually alive. He hasn't set us the task of climbing up to sit with Christ. Salvation is by God's grace. So when everything in your life feels like it's one long line of dominoes that are falling over on you, even in times like that, the things that really matter are safe because they're a gift from God's great love because they're resting with our risen, reigning Lord Jesus. 
when you and I are trying to save ourselves, every day is just a new trial to go through where we aim to be good enough and we fail every time. And even in those days where we do well, we get puffed up with pride and that messes it up on us. But when our life is built on God's goodness to us, when it's rooted in His love and mercy to us, then every day is a new opportunity. Not an opportunity to prove ourselves, but to experience more of His grace. As He keeps us, as He picks us up, as He carries us, In the final verses, Paul explains the difference all this makes to the way we live. You've been saved not by good works, but for good works. First, look how salvation is not by our works. Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. No matter how many times you and I hear that our good works can't save us, we all have this tendency to try and build ourselves a stairway to heaven somehow. The human race has been trying to do it ever since the Tower of Babel. The people of Babel said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And even as Christians, we can often fall into this. We fall into treating our efforts and our good works like they're little building blocks we can pile up to impress God. And of course, to impress other people as well. We can even begin to treat our witnessing and our service in the church like that. Little steps we're building that will get us to heaven. But not only is that a miserable way to live and full of pride, here Paul says it's back to front. God's grace has already built the stairway to heaven. You can't build it yourself. Jesus is the way to heaven. Just trust in what he did for you on the cross. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. It's to trust that he has already done all that needed to be done. And then, having received God's salvation as his gracious gift, then good works find their proper place. Not as an attempt to impress God, but as part of a life that is fueled by God's love and acceptance. Look how Paul explains that in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. A handiwork or handiwork is something that's formed by an artist. It's a work of art. 
shaped and crafted by the artist with skill and care. Now, this verse is telling us God's grace is purposeful like that. When God saved you, that wasn't the end of the story. And now you just pass the time till you get to heaven. No, saving you was the beginning of a new life. God saved you so you can live a new life that does good. As you seek to honor your Savior in the dozens of little conversations you have, the little jobs you do, the fights you break up between your kids, the homework sessions you do with a good attitude instead of a bad one, the video calls you make, the phone calls, the deliveries, every little decision to be honest instead of deceitful. In all of it, you and I have a chance to honor our Savior with our words and our attitude and our actions. And just as we heard in chapter 1 that God chose you in advance, so here we're told his attention to you is so detailed, he even prepared good works for you in advance. What does that mean, though? Well, we're taking it the wrong way if we begin to agonize over it and start asking, well, how do I know what God has prepared for me to do? What if I do something that's good, but he didn't prepare it for me to do? Don't think of it that way. Verse 10 is here to assure us we will never be in a meaningless situation. You will never live a meaningless day. When you or I wake up in the morning and think about the day ahead, and in those days when we wonder what use we could possibly be, or how we could possibly, possibly glorify God in the hours ahead of us and the tasks that we have, in this verse, Paul is asking us to stop and to realize this day was prepared in advance by God. The responsibilities of this day might seem dreary to me, or they might seem to be daunting and overwhelming to me when I look at them. But God has given them to me. He has laid them out for me. I can do these small things or I can face these big things knowing God has prepared them for me. And he will make something of my effort. Somehow, it will fit into his big plan. And as you do these things, God will be making something of you. If you are his handiwork, and you are, then somehow as you give yourself to doing these good works, God will continue to shape you into what he wants you to be, his work of art. At the end of verse 10, when it says God prepared good works for us to do, literally it's he prepared good works for us to walk in. And if that sounds a little bit familiar, 
We've heard it before back in verse 2. We were told in verse 2, we used to walk in the ways of this world, under the power of the devil, with our desires and thoughts bent out of shape. But look how far God has brought us. Now, by His grace, we are men and women who walk in the ways He has prepared for us. And as we walk in those ways, our lives will be beautiful. Beautiful to God and beautiful to those around us. So this week, if your life seems to be stale, if it feels uninspiring to you, take time to stop. And look at your life the way Scripture does. Remember the life you've been delivered from. Remember it was God's great love that delivered you. And remember it didn't end there. Now you have a new life to live. Every day, even in the smallest things, you and I have the privilege of living for the God who has saved us. And there is nothing stale or uninspiring about that. So let's close by praising our gracious God. As we sing, first of all, here is love, and then yet not I, but through Christ in me.
Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, may he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen.